Hello team and welcome to episode 370 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Fitz Kohler. Fitz is the author of multiple books including The Noisy Cancer Comeback, a keynote speaker, professional race announcer, and fitness expert. Fitz's story is inspirational from start to finish and the perspective she had before and after her battle with cancer is one that will motivate you and help you put your health and fitness goals into perspective. In this episode, you can expect to learn why right now is the time to start preparing preparing yourself for any illness you may encounter, how Fitz managed parenting and staying positive during over a year of chemo treatment, along with how Fitz is choosing to live her life today after overcoming her battle with cancer and the lessons she's taken with her. So without further ado, Fitz Cola. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm spectacular, Elliot. Nice to see you. It's a pleasure to see you too. I'm excited to dive into your story today, get my listeners to get to know you a little bit better. So where I want to start today is by allowing them to do exactly that. So can you share a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah, so I am noisy and I am bossy and I help people live better and longer by making fitness understandable, attainable and fun. I have a master's degree from the University of Florida in exercise and sports sciences. I've been teaching for decades. I started really young. And the main focus of what I do right now is teaching via mass media. So television, radio, online content. I write books. And I'm a a very busy corporate keynote speaker. So I show up and usually address instead of exercise clothes and talk about fitness and compel people to do better and be better. And then I'm also a professional race announcer. So I host massive running events, uh, road racing in America. So my marquee events include the Los Angeles Marathon and the Big Sur Marathon and Buffalo Marathon and Fargo and so forth. So I stay busy and, you know, it's just, it's trying to dumb things down and get people to understand that their health is important and that the tactics of achieving it are really simple. That's amazing. You're definitely on the right show today being the Simply Fit podcast. The aim of this is to simplify everything and give people actionable takeaways for their journey. So we're definitely on the same page there as well. And I want to roll back the years a little bit. What piqued your curiosity when it came to health and fitness to lead you down this route and this path? Yeah. So I had a, uh, I got hurt playing soccer or football (laughs) and uh, (laughs) blew my knee out when had surgery. I went to physical therapy or physio and that physio said, Hey, you need to continue strength training or you're going to re-injure your knee. And so my mom uh, lied. She said I was 15 so I could join a gym. And uh, I, I started working out and I fell in love with it. I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed the people. I started taking classes. I was working at a, a business here called Cinnabon where they make massive cinnamon buns, a uh, high school job for minimum wage. And the manager was pretty mean. So at some point I quit that job and I applied at the gym. And the, the manager said, it was a Tuesday. He said, well, can, have you ever taught a class? And I said, no. He said, do you want to teach one on Friday? And I said, okay. So I didn't have any skills or like, certifications or anything. I just thought, all right, I'll give it a try. And thankfully the class went really well. And I just fell in love with the interactions and helping people. So I got the basic certification and then, you know, I went on from there, but I, I do, I, I truly believe in this health and fitness thing, um, hook, line and sinker and, you know, helping others uh, achieve 
health means so much to me. It's its its own reward, right? I, I love that I can make an income doing it, but it really is just special to help people. Absolutely. And it's incredible because you mentioned that your journey started early. And I assume that first class was taught when you were in your teens. Am I right in saying that? I might have just turned 15. Yeah. Yeah. I was no way. Fresh. I, was, I couldn't even drive a car on my own. <laughs> so yeah, it definitely started early. And obviously, we're some decades down the line now. So what keeps you inspired to keep going? Because I know a lot of people in the fitness industry, I know that you mentioned it's a privilege. And I personally feel the same. But I know that so many people within the industry, they maybe just pass a decade and they're thinking, okay, you know, I'm growing tired of this a little bit. Maybe I need to go find, uh, I, and you know, I put this in quote unquote, but a lot of people say I need to find a proper job, you know, and then they go and leave the industry and it's pretty sad to see, but what keeps you going compared to a lot of people who lose their passion along the way? So it's twofold. Number one, I never get tired of people doing better and being better. You know, it's my rewards where some people get trophies and plaques for their, uh, professional accomplishments. When someone calls me and says, Fitz, thank you so much. I no longer have back pain. That means a lot to me when someone feels good about who they are, they stand up straight and they get a better job. You know, I just, I'm committed to it. So the cause I've never flinched from. In fact, I, I become more and more committed that fitness is the answer to so many issues every day. And then the other thing is I've been able to turn it into a career. So You know, I do know as a personal trainer, you know, you don't get any sick time. You don't get any benefits. If you're not doing the job, no one's paying you. And uh, I've been able to turn it into a career with residual income and then higher paying jobs. In fact, I, other than people buying my books, which is a small amount, I don't have any capacity to take money from people. So corporations pay me for the work I do. And then I get to give the quality advice. I get to tell people the truth for free. I never want a dollar to stand between me and helping a person. So I just think the way I've created my career, it's worked out uh, for for the long haul. Absolutely. And talk to us about the transition between teaching that first fitness class to what you do today as a keynote speaker, as someone who does a lot of corporate wellness, who announces the race. There must have been a lot packed into that. So dive into what that journey has looked like. Yeah. So, I mean, first it was just as many classes I could teach and I, I just thought this is fun. I want to do more of it. But even as a, a kid, and I was a kid, I thought, wow, this is super important. And, and everybody around me was semi-overweight, even if they were athletic. And I thought, it's important to get to people while they're young. So I was 15 showing up to give little presentations to Girl Scout troops, six and seven-year-old girls. I was going and talking to them about healthy food and moving your body and, you know, taking care of yourself. And, you know, I, I thought it wasn't just about exercising with a person at the moment. It was about getting them to comprehend, you know, that's why I say understandable, attainable, and fun. It's that understandable apart. Can they, can they get the gravity of this need and then can they understand it and can they know that they can do it? So that started really young. I was hired to host a TV show when I was 20. That was pretty cool. So uh, that show was called Cardio Jam and it was myself and a handful of other instructors. And uh, I learned two things. Number one, that my skills were relatable. So not only could I teach in front of a live audience, but I can teach in front of the camera. So that was that was a good thing to learn. Uh, but then once the show started airing, strangers started approaching me. And it was just uh, gripping when a stranger would come up and say, are you Fitz? And they'd say, yes. And they'd say, I love your show and I do it all the time and I've lost 17 pounds. Thank you. And I thought it would just blow me back every single time that I was able to help strangers. And so, you know, that right there, 
I, I, I was all in and I wanted more of that. I just, you know, because if you're teaching a class, maybe you get 50 people max. But the fact that I was teaching thousands, who, who knew what the number was, right? So I started appearing on television news, which allowed me to get an even broader reach on simple messages, tools people can use to become fitter today. Uh, but then I started writing articles for magazines. And soon after, I started getting letters uh, handwritten letters in the mail that would say, thank you so much. This resonated with me and yada, yada, yada. So I've never looked back. I just, I love what I do. And it's, it's, I've taken a bunch of twists and turns, but my laser focus has never turned from fitness and health. Absolutely. And a big part of your journey when I was doing some research on yourself is the battle that you had with cancer. And now there's a lot that you do on that topic. And you speak to those people who are maybe battling it themselves, who have gone through it, and obviously weaving in health and fitness. Can you run us through that story a little bit? Because I think that that's going to be very inspirational to add to an already inspirational story. Yeah, well, you know what? I'm the exhibit A. If it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody, right? And so we're all responsible for taking particular actions. But in February of 2019, seven weeks after a crystal clear mammogram, I went in, I did the due diligence. They looked and they said, there's nothing there. Seven weeks later, I was at a race weekend. I was actually running a race that weekend. I got out of the shower and I rubbed my underboob and I found a lump. And you know, my world spun out of control. I picked up the phone instantly. I was on the bathroom counter and standing there naked. I called the doctor and that set me up for the appointments and the scans and the biopsy. And within about a week or so that I was told, Hey, you have breast cancer. It's running through you like wildfire. It's moving at warp speed. It's already infected your lymph nodes and we need to treat you now and aggressively. So that was wild. And you know, I was living my best life, doing all the right things. And some people say, well, why you? Well, why not me? You know, there's babies in hospitals with cancer. So of course, if they can have it, I can have it. It was it was my responsibility to do my best to prevent all sorts of cancers, which I do, and then to find it early, right? Be aware of my body and response. So I did that and I was in for a whole lot of hurting. It was uh, 15 months of chemotherapy, which is a long time to be poisoned. It's a very long time. And I had 33 rounds of radiation in there and I had some surgeries and it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. You think about the sick cancer patient. That was me. I was exploding nonstop. My stomach was waging war on me. It was, it was a rough time. I lost a lot of weight, but I also was able to travel around America almost every week, almost every weekend of my treatment announcing races, even though I was sick. And the only reason I was able to do that was because I was so healthy and fit coming into this uh, crisis and I remained healthy and fit. So it wasn't just about, oh, she used to run and she used to do this. You know, I had many days where I was, I was stuck in bed. And if all I would have done was lie there in bed, I, my deterioration would have been even greater. My muscles would have atrophied even more. Instead, when I was in bed, I was doing the things that I could. I was stretching, right? I was stretching my hips and my arms. I would do a little strength training, maybe some supermans and bridges for my back. When I got in the shower, I would stretch. And then as I started to come out of my the worst stage of my chemo funk, I, I got in the pool and I wiggled and then I walked and then eventually I swam and I rebuilt my body gradually. So cancer is no joke. It's, it's horrific. Not everybody gets it as bad. Not, some people get it worse. But I, I found that my commitment to health and fitness, my understanding of how valuable it was for me, uh, drove me to 
help others with cancer. So at some point when I was a complete catastrophe, my doctor, he said, Fitz, I'm so proud of you. You're doing so great. And I said, why are you saying that? Every morsel of my body has been torched. My digestive system, my fingernails are ripping off. My hair is gone. My eyebrows are gone. My lashes are gone. I look like Voldemort. And um, I mean, it was so bad. And he said, Fitz, if you were not so healthy and fit coming into this, not only would you have not been able to travel around speaking and hosting and all the things, he said, you likely would have been hospitalized for at least a month. You likely would have had a feeding tube, but you haven't had any of those things. So that was very powerful and, um, you know, again, made me fall even more in love with health and fitness. But then, you know, when I did hit what I considered for me rock bottom, when I, when I, I was skeletally thin, my mother, she called and she looked at me, she said, you look like you were in the Holocaust. And I thought, well, thanks. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? I, I thanks, mom. You know, um, she was worried and I get it. But at that point, I never had a doubt that I was going to return to healthy and athletic. I had never had a doubt that I would be able to rebuild my body to where it was supposed to be because I'm a fitness expert. Hooray. However, at that point, I had that real um, concern and sadness from my peers, for all the other cancer patients and survivors who were hitting rock bottom, whether they had lost a lot of weight or they had gained. A lot of people gain weight during cancer care. And they, you know, the surgeries make you tight and make you weak and all, and radiation is tough. And I just thought, uh, they don't know how to rebuild their bodies. They don't, they don't know how to do it. And so that's why I, I've turned my, some of my focus, not all of it, but some of it towards helping cancer patients you know, A, get through cancer care without declining fully. So what can we do? Can we do strength, cardio, flexibility, balance training to prevent the decline? The answer is yes. And then how do we guide them to rebuild their body after it's been brutalized? And um, so I've done that with some books and I'm very proud of them. Yeah, it's a truly incredible story. And if you found that those going into their cancer treatment who maybe don't have the best health in the world, and it's just going to be the average person, you know, there's, I, I don't know if it's correct in saying, but one in three people experience some form of cancer, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, there's one in three people, I don't know what the obesity percentages are, are probably close they to being obese. Yeah, exactly. So it's highly likely that those who are going to experience cancer probably also experience poor health or obesity or something along those lines. So what type of results are they able to to get going in a position that was nowhere close to where you went into your cancer treatment with. Right. So, you know, the message here for everyone who's listening and doesn't have cancer, prepare your body to do battle today because you never know when illness or injury will strike, right? So we don't know when we're going to get hit by lightning, whacked by a car, or get a disease. So make your body better now. Don't wait until someone says you have cancer to start taking your health seriously. But we can all fend off or, or, yeah, we can all fend off ugliness by taking better care of ourselves. And if you wait for the diagnosis, okay, what can you do to prevent yourself from getting worse than you are now? So it's not about instantly becoming a marathoner or an Ironman athlete once you have cancer or MS. It's about saying, okay, what can I do now? And so the, the key is to do the things that you can do. Try and at least maintain what you got, right? So, um if you get the diagnosis, for me, I once I was diagnosed, I exercised a lot more between that point and treatment because I needed the stress management, right? My body hadn't been affected by the care yet, so I was I probably spent double the time at the gym or outside. I just was, I needed to get out that toxic feeling. It was that mental anguish. 
but yeah, you can always work on maintaining or gaining strength. You can always work on flexibility and balance. And, you know, so this is uh, one of the books. It's Your Healthy Cancer Comeback, Sick to Strong. Very, very proud of this book. It basically, it's the guidebook, right? But chapter seven is my favorite. Okay, chapter seven is called Everything Exercise. And, you know, uh, Ellie, you know that not everybody even knows the basics, right? They don't know how to work their back or whatever. So there's all the basic exercises broken down by muscle group up front. But then let's say something's gone wrong and you can't stand up. Okay, well, here's a whole bunch of exercises you can do in a chair, right? And you can accomplish a whole bunch sitting down. And then the next side is tons of exercises you can do in bed, and then we get into, like for me, if you're sick, and as you understand, if you're sick, you get in the shower a lot. I always stretched in the shower. So I would either turn on happy music or Jerry Seinfeld shows and listen to him for a little bit of joy. But uh, it's not about being who you were. It's about trying to be the best version of you today. And, you know, when you're in an, stuck in exam rooms all the time, are there things you can do in exam rooms? to be fit because you're in that private space, right? Your doctor hasn't come in yet and you're sitting sitting alone. Instead of twiddling your thumbs, you know, you can get up. You know, standing is better than sitting. Swaying is better than standing still. Can you do push-ups on the counter or stretches on the exam table? For sure. So that's that's where I'm trying to convince people to just push the envelope and, and fend off the decline. That's always one of my key messages is that something is better than nothing. And I think that sometimes we underestimate those small things, but when they compound over days, months, and years, they really add up. I have a client right now and she's doing 10 press-ups per day. And, you know, by the time you get to the end of the year, you know, you're looking at <laughs> over 3,000 press-ups and that's no joke, you know, especially if you aren't someone who's super, super um, able to do one or two of those, you know, if you do 10 a day for a whole year, like, and it seems small, but it adds up to be something enormous. So I love that message. I really do. And before we go forward with that, I want to take a step back and look at some of those darker moments that maybe you had. You are an unbelievably positive, high energy person. I don't think it takes one or two people to realize that. So how did you manage to get through those? I know that your mindset and your positivity probably would have taken you through a lot of it. But at the same time, like you said, cancer's no joke. The treatment was aggressive and it wouldn't have been a surprise for you to really find some challenges, not only from a, why do I have to go for this, but also a perspective of like your identity as well. Like I said, it's kind of taking away your hair, taking away your eyebrows, all these things that kind of make us physically who we are and what we rely a lot of our identity on. How did you manage all of that? You know, it was, it was constantly changing. So my appearance, especially never, you know, it was, it was constantly changing. Usually it was deteriorating. Uh, so first of all, it helps that I have incredible perspective. I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit. It was a few years before my cancer diagnosis. I was in the grocery store in the Quick Island, uh, the Quick Isle, the checkout lane for people with 10 items or less. And the woman in front of me was about 5,000 years old, and she had 9 million items on the conveyor belt, and she was writing a check. It was taking a long time, and I had to go. And so inside, I was stewing. I was thinking, oh, how annoying. And then I looked at the lane next to us, and there was a little girl in a, a red, yellow, blue, shiny snow white dress and a bald head. And I thought, oh, what that poor child must be going through. And, and her parents, like, that's hard. How dare I have a little internal argument over this poor woman checking out her stuff? So from that point on, I would always say, it's not cancer. So whether red wine spilled on a white couch or I'd crash a car, as long as no one was hurt, I'd say it's not cancer. And I really never let anything 
get me down. And I'm so proud of that. And so when it was cancer, I thought, oh man, it's cancer. But then I thought, okay, well, I'm not a kid with cancer and it's not my kid with cancer. So I'm fortunate to be a big girl with cancer. So I put on those big girl panties and soldier on. So, you know, that helped a lot. I confess I did probably cry almost every day. You know, I wasn't immune to sadness and stress, but I would cry and then I'd get it out and I'd get on with it. I would find a reason to be happy. I would normally cry alone, pathetically in my bathroom or in my G or in my car. And I just, I just needed to vent it. And I knew tears dry. It's okay. And I'd move on. And so I know exactly who I am. Right. So even though I was sad to lose my hair, my hair is not who I was. Someone actually said like, Oh, your hair is your trademark. And I thought, how dare you? My trademark is my big brains and my big mouth and my ability to help people that, you know, God forbid my trademark was my hair, but I still was sad to lose the hair. I was sad when my fingernails ripped off. I was, you know, there was a lot of things that were just really challenging and the medical procedures were scary. And so I would just kind of talk myself through it. I would, I would allow myself to have a few tears and then I would remind myself, you know, you, you've built an international business. You've raised two great kids. You, I used to be a competitive kickboxer. And so I would, I would coach myself up on the inside. I was saying, Fitz Kohler, you can do this. You've done hard things in the past. You can do this too. And every single time I sat down and they would normally poke me in the needle right in my port in my chest, which is awful. And I would, I would coach myself up. And so, you know, how fortunate your clients are to have you with them, Elliot. But if they get diagnosed and they have to go to chemo, they have to go by themselves. Like my husband couldn't have taken any of those shots for me. Nobody could have sat in the scans for me. Nobody could have had the surgeries or, or had the radiation. It was all me having to do that. So at the end of the day, we are stuck with ourselves and we need to be in the habit. We need to have the ability and the determination to talk ourselves up instead of put ourselves down. So that was it. I let, I was human. You know, I certainly cried, but then I would convince myself that I could get through it. I could do it. I could get through it. And I was better than all this. And and I had said that enough that I did get through it. And I'm, <laughs> I am better than all that. And here we are today. And I love that. And that's the reality. And I always tell people a lot of the times it's maybe not cancer or any situation, but a lot of people go through a lot of challenging things. And the big thing is, it's like, you can cry, you can complain, you can do anything that you want that's expressing of your emotions, be them negative or whatever you want to call them, but you still have to do something, you know? And I think that that's what it comes down to at the end of the day, as you've mentioned, like, it's not fair. You know, there's many things that might not be just, but I always tell people, it's like, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. And I think that that's the perspective I always like to remind people of. And it sounds like that's exactly what you had as well. You're like, okay, this sucks. I'm going to cry and it's not my fault. But, you know, the only person who's getting me out of this place is me. The only people who can take, the only person I should say can take the shots is me, right? Yeah. And it's one of those things where I, you know, I learned really early on that uh, I had a horrible experience in an MRI. I'm claustrophobic and I lost my marbles. But that moment, I realized that if I wanted to survive, and it really was a game of survival, right? That I was going to constantly have to do things that terrified me. And uh, that just became the name of the game. I was constantly put in that position. Now, on the bright side, is after all of that, I'm afraid of virtually nothing. Like I, I'm, I worry, you know, my, if anything happened to my kids, that would be the, the scariest, but man, I am so hardcore. It is 
probably even annoying. Like I just, there's no fear. There's no concern. I don't care what people think about me. You know, the last thing I could be brought down by is somebody else's opinion, right? I've done cancer for crying out loud. So uh, yeah, life on the other side, once you get there is spectacular. So I, you know, I wouldn't go back. If I could flip the switch and not have cancer, I would flip that switch and not have had cancer. However, I did. And I would be, I would be a big idiot if I didn't take those quality lessons and, and put them to great use. Yeah. That's something I want to ask you a question on in just a moment. But whilst we're here, I want to ask how you felt as a mother going through cancer as well. I've never asked that question to someone who's gone through this. And like, how did you find navigating, you know, being a parent? How did you speak to them about it? How did you feel during it? It must've been a pretty difficult time. Yeah. Yeah. So parenting with cancer is tricky. It's very tricky. So I waited to tell Ginger and Parker, who she was 15 at the time and he was 13. I waited to tell them until I knew I definitely had it. So I didn't say, hey, I found a lump. Let's see what goes and make them worry uh, without reason, right? So once I got the news, I sat them each down individually. And, and even though they're a team, he's very quiet and reserved. She's very big, which is a big joy and big grief. So I told him first, she was exercising in our home gym. So I, I had to sit down and say, Parker, um, I've got bad news and some good news. You know, the bad news is I found a lump over the past week. I've been going to some appointments and they did a biopsy and I just got the news that I, I have breast cancer. And, um, but the good news is it's highly curable. You know, we had just had a friend, one of his good buddies, mom just died of pancreatic cancer. And we were helping that family through it. We were very entwined with them. So I had to do a lot of convincing that my cancer was not the same as what she had. And I have much brighter uh, outcomes, you know, much better percentages. So, you know, I told him and he was, he was reserved and he said, mommy, I think you're going to look really cute bald. And I said, oh, sweetheart, thank you, you know. So a few months later, or many months later, when things had turned and I was doing well, I said, Parker, did you ever think I was going to die? He said, oh, yeah, right away. I, I believe definitely you were going to die. But he didn't He didn't let on at all when I told him. It was very interesting. And then, so he was told and, and kind of like absorbed it. So then I had I brought my daughter in and I had the same conversation with her and she just wailed. I mean, she just, she wailed. It was agonizing. And I was still in a place where, I really wasn't sure if I was going to survive this thing. I, I, you know, I didn't get it yet, but I was desperately trying to convince her. I was like, no, I'm going to be fine. You know, it's interesting what you will say. You will say and do anything to protect your child from fear and suffering. And so that was, that was interesting. And, um, it, it was hard. It was probably took her an hour to calm down. And, um, but here's the beauty of kids. Kids are resilient especially if they have their own activities. So you had the school and sports and friends. And it was, it was just a few weeks before they were picking, they were making fun of mom's bald head. Right. So um, we have a, a fun family and you know, they, they, they're resilient. My kids are great. I made efforts not to scare them. So some people like to bring their whole family in for chemo. The last thing I wanted my kids to see me is get poked in the chest with a needle. I didn't want them to see the fear in my face when they came at me with those big needles. So we, I never brought them in for treatment. They showed up when I finished chemo, my last day, they came to the lobby and welcomed me. And we, we did a little TikTok dance and we had some celebrations. <laughs> On my last day of radiation, 
they, you know, once I was done with treatment, my family was there. So I rang the bell. But yeah, I, you know, I had no choice but to tell them. And then I did my best to protect them from, from the really hard stuff. I don't, I didn't lie to them. I just wasn't forthright about all the suffering that was going on because they're kids. Right. I truly believe that it was probably reflected their approach after the initial reaction, which obviously every single person is going to navigate differently. But after that, it was probably the comfort that you gave them in your mentality. And like you said, you didn't take them through what they didn't need to see. And it wasn't that you were lying or being deceiving. It's just like at the end of the day, they don't need to see that. And I think that, you know, like you said, your mentality was being able to joke about it, being able to smile through it. And of course, having those moments, but of course you kept those to yourself as well. Like you mentioned when you were crying in the bathroom as well. And I think that they probably just reflected your strength back to you. And it's amazing that kids can do that. But ultimately you had to lead the way if you were doom and gloom and, you know, saying, I don't know if I'm going to make it, then, you know, that could have been a completely different story. You are absolutely right. And, you know, everybody's got their own way, but I say, choose joy, choose joy every every time. And when kids are concerned, you know, protect them from whatever you can. Um, I'm grateful that I was able to do that. And I survived, you know, not everybody is so fortunate with their cancer experience. But yeah, it's I I protected them when I could and it, it worked out. Absolutely. I love that message. And then you rang that bell, you did your TikTok dance, you headed home. I'm sure that felt amazing. What was your life after that? You know, the first couple of weeks, I'm sure you were just, I know that you didn't slow your life down too much because you mentioned you were traveling across the country every weekend. But at the same time, it must have been like, wow, you know, I have my freedom back, but at the same time, maybe I have to build things back up again. Yeah. So (laughs) it's interesting. I break my chemo into two different parts. So the first five months we called the main chemo is a concoction of four really nasty cancer drugs that just were awful. They're awful and great because they they killed a lot of cancer cells. But then I had 15 more rounds, 10 more months of a different chemo, which was less mean, but still awful. We called it Godzilla. So there was mean chemo followed by Godzilla, which real name is Kedzila. So anywho, um, it was once I had Kedzila and I had finished with surgery that I was able to start getting things back. You know, I, all I did for about six months solid was lose, lose hair, lose um, muscle mass, my eyelashes, you know, my stomach, everything I lost, lost, lost. And then it, and that was starting in March. So in October of that year, it was like I had little eyelash buds and I was so proud that I started getting something back. I had this one hair that grew out of the top of my head. We called it alfalfa. Um, and there was, there was one that came out of the back of my head, just two inches long. We called her Lolita. And my kids at first were like, you got to shave those heads. They're weird. And I was like, no, these two hairs on my head are leading the charge and I'm going to reward them. I'm not cutting them. <laughs> I'm going to celebrate. So it was a real joy to finally start getting like a little crew cut came back and I dyed it platinum because I thought, you know, if I'm going to have it, it's going to be fun. So, uh, it, it right. really, Yeah, it was wonderful to start getting some energy back. Again, I was still having issues, but not the same. And uh, that's when I really started moving towards exercising. And my exercise was so gentle. Like my very first day after like I had healed from surgery, I got in a pool and I didn't even try to walk or swim. I just, I wiggled. (laughs) I got in the pool and I wiggled for 20 minutes. I was so proud of me, you know, and the wiggling became maybe stretching in the pool and um, eventually I started strength training and do and walking and doing those things um, a little more aggressively. And it was wonderful to start getting things back. Now, after all of it was over, when I finished all the treatment, 
uh, it was when COVID had come. So I didn't have the same opportunities and I was really irritated. And, you know, people may not like to hear this, but I was pretty ticked off because I had just fearlessly traveled the country as the most immune compromised person on earth, hugging thousands of sweaty strangers. And they were shutting down the world for a virus. I was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You're shutting down the world. So I was pretty cranky, but thankfully I live in Florida and our governor has a real respect for freedom. And so I finished chemo May 10th of 2020. And a month later, a Spartan race came to Florida, obstacle course race. And I was like, I'm going to do that. And so I, I had my surgeon get my port out quickly and we sealed it. He's like, I'm not giving you permission, but just put tape on it. I said, okay. So went out and uh, I was so happy. I was the slowest person out there. I failed at like 60, 70% of the strength challenges, but I was so proud of me and it was filled with, uh, storms had come and Florida's really soggy. So uh, it was hip high waters, running through trails, falling in muck. It was just pure joy where so many people will show up. Either they'll be terrified to try an obstacle course race. Oh my God. It's really not that hard. You know, you do your best, go as slow as you need. And if you can't do a, a, a challenge, fine, go to the next one. So I was the slowest and I was the happiest. I was so proud of me. And then I got a little cocky. And the next week I signed up for a sprint triathlon, which was a few hundred yards swimming and an 11 mile bike around this big hilly lake. And then a two mile walk around. I was like, I'm going to do it. You know, I, I had been working out until that point and, uh, Whew, that was hard. It was, uh, I, I hyperventilated through the swim for some reason. I just kind of freaked out in the water and, you know, I was the first one in and I was the last one out and I got passed by pregnant women and elderly people and little kids. They all blew by me, but I got out of the water and I was proud. I got on the bike and I might've been to about mile eight and it was kind of hilly and I was looking for the finish line thinking, oh my gosh, where are we going to get there? But I was really proud. Like, look at me go. I'm on the bike doing a try. And at the very last block of that race, it was so steep. And so I'm trying to ride the bike up the hill. I can't do it. I have to dismount. I'm just stuck there and I'm hyperventilating and I'm going, <gasps> and there's a volunteer trying to like encourage me. And then there's the cops behind me with the red and blue lights because they uh, they always follow the final finisher to make sure everybody gets home safe. So <laughs> so I'm there and I got the cop behind me and I've got With this your entourage. Yeah, and I can't even speak. I can't even get out the words chemo. This is you know they're looking at this trim woman thinking why is she in such bad shape? But <laughs> and all I can think is how cool is this? This is this is hard, but this is way more awesome than the hard thing I was doing exactly one year ago, which was the mean chemo, right? So I was so proud. And I finally walked my bike up the hill. The two miles on foot was mostly walking, a little bit of running, but I've never been so proud of myself. You know, it really just, it was such a wonderful welcome back to health and fitness. And did I suck wind? You betcha. Was I the last? Absolutely. Was I the happiest? Yeah. So, um, you know, my return to health and fitness was just filled with joy. I was so happy. Yeah. I have no doubt about it. And you didn't 
put yourself in the shallow end, did you? You just dived straight back in, <laughs> gave yeah. your body zero chance at all. But at the same uh-huh. time, how amazing it is that you can overcome that. Like you said, you can apply that perspective. You know, anytime you're going through something hard now, I'm sure you're like, well, one year ago, it was mean chemo. Two years ago, it was this. And I know that you had perspective before because of you, funnily enough, used the cancer analogy in the past, right? But now you can really use it, right? Yeah, and it's it's a shame that some people would take cancer, for example. I mean, I, w- I had great perspective before, so lucky me. But I don't want anyone to be sitting around not pursuing adventure on any level. Well, your adventure maybe is hiking through the forest or uh, hang gliding or whatever it is. But so many people just let their life slip away. And then when someone looks them in the eye and says, hey, man, you may not have some so much life left, you start panicking, thinking, oh, I should have, would have, could have. So don't wait. Just start. Start today. And if you fail, big deal. You know, if you're slow, big deal. If you're last, big deal. It's better to be the out, the person out there doing something than the person doing nothing. Absolutely. And I think so many of us come from the perspective that we think we have to be good at it. And the reality is, is that you don't, you know, you just need to do it for the experience. You want to do it for you. And you might find that you're good at it. You might find that you're terrible at it. But at the end of the day, what's the goal here? To try it, to enjoy it, to have experiences or to be the absolute best. One of my coaches gave me that perspective a little while back. He was just like, you know, you can just be in the top 10% of the country or the world or 20%. You don't have to be the best at it. So you can stop putting yourself with like a ton of pressure and have fear of starting something. He's like, just start it, see how you go. And if you enjoy it, then maybe this isn't a pursuit that you're going to be elite at. But at the end of the day, what is your goal here? You know, there might be other things in which you do want to be able to lead that, but maybe you do find a ton of enjoyment in this. And the fear of not starting because you don't think you're going to be good at it is something that's only going to hold you back. You know, you're never actually going to find out whether you're good at it or not to be completely honest either. Right. And I really enjoy the giggles that come with doing things I'm bad at. (laughs) You know, if I tried a belly dancing class today, you betcha I would giggle a lot. And would I impress nobody? I would impress nobody, but I'd also don't care. Remember, other people's opinions is none of your business. It's not my business what people think of me. So as long as I'm enjoying the process and my body's benefiting, it's a win-win. And I can imagine mindset is a big piece of the books that you've written, especially in that yes. comeback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a title on mindset? So I'm going to show you num- chapter number one of Your Healthy Cancer Comeback. Control. That's it. It starts there. And you can't control it with your body. You got to control yourself first. So mental fortitude is a huge message. So my memoir, my noisy cancer comeback, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of mental stuff, but it's intertwined in all the books just because it's so necessary. Without it, you're nothing. But And that's exactly, yeah, I want to hear it about because if I don't think that a lot of people recognize that when they go into these things, the power of the mind and the body working together, sometimes it's the body on its own, sometimes it's the mind on its own, sometimes it's none of the above. And I want you to talk about that a little bit more because of you've definitely built this strong and resilient mindset and you've mentioned that word control. So you can dive into what that means to you and some of the key components of the mindset that's resilient, the strong that can get through these things. Yeah. So we talked about perspective and your tattoo is perfect. You know, perspective really is the key to happiness, I believe. Um, Number two is passion. So For me, even before I had one drop of drug put into my body, I had committed that I was 
cancer was going to take my hair, some of my energy, maybe my good feelings, but it was not going to take special time with my kids. So if Ginger and Parker had a show, a sport, a ceremony, I was going to be there no matter what. That was commitment number one. Number two was my career. And not everybody loves their career. I adore my career. I've worked so hard to build it. I have earned my rightful spot on those stages I stand on. And I was not going to let cancer take those things. And so, you know, the real miracles for me was when it comes to work, you know, traveling across the country with a stomach issue is not fun. But once I would get to where I was going, even if I had to sleep on the hotel bathroom floor that night, wake up, drag myself off the ground, get dressed, and I'd go over to the start line stage or my stage where I was speaking. And um, the second I stepped on my stages, absolutely everything that was wrong with me disappeared. I wasn't sick. I wasn't tired. I wasn't suffering. All I felt was joy and excitement about the event I was hosting and these extraordinary people I was serving. And so for me, my kids and my career, for you, you know, maybe it's Maybe it's football and maybe it's tennis and maybe it's art or music or gardening, whatever it is, the things that you love most, they should always be in your life. And and so on good days, yes, you should build in your passions into every good day. But on the bad days, even more, they you need them. And so uh, let's just say you love animals. Great. Keep be, Spend as much time as you can with your animals, but perhaps you're in the hospital for X, whatever it is. All right, well, can you read books about animals? Can you watch a TV show about animals? Can you get on your phone and watch funny or inspiring animal videos? Yeah, you can do that. So they can always be a part of your life, and sometimes you have to force those things. So it's perspective, it's passions. Um, I throw in positivity, which, duh, but... You know, what I found is you get no extra points for being the most pathetic person in the room. And uh, some people might err on that side, like, oh, if I look super sad, they'll care about me, they'll pity me, they'll give me extra attention. Is that really the kind of attention we want? That's not, I mean, I I outright told people, listen, this is what I got going on. I'm going to be fine. It's going to be hard, but you cannot pity me. You can root for me. So let people root for you, but don't ask them to pity you because that comes with no reward. There's no benefit. I'll drag you down and drag them down and everyone will be down and nobody's having fun. So um, perspective, passions, positivity. Remember that you can do hard things. You got to talk yourself up. And uh, I, I've, I've forced in a thing called strawberry moments. You know what strawberry moments are? No, I don't. Okay. So <laughs> my children go to the sleepaway camp every year. It's called Camp Crystal. And uh, it's two weeks or one week at a time. But what they do with the campers in the evening is in your in the cabin you, you're staying in, all the campers gather around and they have to share their strawberry moments from the day. And strawberry moments are virtually your best, your favorite moment from each day. And so during summer camp, those moments look like I won the rowing competition or I learned a new funny song. But with cancer, you gotta pick your strawberry moments too because again, things can be hard, things can be dark. If you force in the joy, if you're forcing in looking for the bright sides, you're going to come up with them. So perhaps you got a funny text from a long lost friend or or you got good news or maybe your nurse was really sweet. Uh, but there's always going to be a strawberry moment in every one of your days, even the darkest ones. And if you focus on those things, um, it will really lift you up. So that's my thought process on mental fortitude, <laughs> Elliot. I think it's very complete and I love the strawberry moments. It's very much like expressing gratitude, right? <laughs> it's a 
nice way of packaging that in something that maybe seems like a lot of people hear the word gratitude and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. but if you say strawberry moment, it's like, oh, this is a, this is a new phrase I can use. And I like it because of the more, as you said, you reinforce these things, the more you let that light in, the more you see it, the more you let in the darkness the, and the darkness is strong and the light is also strong and you've just got to pick which one you're going to go for, but you can trust that whichever one you're going to go for is the one that's going to prevail. And I think that's a beautiful perspective to remind people of. It's like there's light and dark in almost every situation and sometimes there's more dark than light on first glance but at the end of the day it comes back to your word control that you start your book with it's like well which are you gonna allow to come in because you have control of that so um the third book is the healthy cancer comeback journal and at the very end uh the last hundred pages is a daily journal where you can log your exercise your nutrition your hydration your sleep and then on the other side it's there's a whole section for strawberry moments. And so it's daily, you know, it's got to be intentional. And you're right. People could focus on the worst aspects. And I, I ran into a friend at the gym today and he was telling me about one of our volunteers for our American Cancer Society breast cancer event we put on every year. And I, I contribute to that. And um, Kemp is his name. He was telling me that one of our lead uh, volunteers died in January of pancreatic cancer. He said, he was diagnosed in December and he died January. But all he could tell me about was this guy laughing and just finding the bright side of things. And what a wonderful tribute to someone that they were even facing imminent death. They were still a delight. And, you know, I talk about control and lucky me, I had a curable type of cancer. Right. And I, and I took my health very seriously. I took, I did all the things that I could. And that's, that's really where control comes in. It's not controlling everything. It's controlling what you can. But I hope that if things would have gone south for me and my disease would not have been curable, that I would have still controlled as much of my final days as possible. Would I have wanted to be, have care at home? Yeah. Would I've wanted to be surrounded by particular people? I would have, would I have had my favorite music playing? Absolutely. You know, in my wish, if they're going to plan a funeral type service for me, everybody has to exercise first. So they would say, okay, I'll come before you come to Fitzcoller's funeral, everybody goes exercise. And then we're going to come in and we can do a little bit of crying, but then we're going to talk about our fun and funny experiences with it. So, you know, control is for any situation, right? And a good attitude goes for any situation. You know, cancer's hard, but if you're going to face it without any joy, that's a long, that makes that experience so much harder, so much harder. Absolutely. I can imagine. And the final piece I want to touch on with the mindset is your self-talk. It sounds like it's always been very, very strong. Was that something your parents kind of instilled in you when you were younger? What did your upbringing like that kind of helped you with this positivity and this vibe that you've had? Or is it something that you cultivated yourself from just very young moments? So I think there's a couple of things. I was the youngest of three. My brother's nine years older my sister's six years older. I think I was very frustrated that they were doing things that I wasn't allowed to do. So I was constantly trying, arguing my case that I can do that. I can do that. So that was in my nature to try to do whatever they were doing. Um, but I also in high school, I would try out for various sports teams and I was getting cut. I had knee surgery and uh, I wore a knee brace. And I just was slow. I wasn't very good. I was a little overweight and I just wanted to be on a team. So I tried out for soccer, football, uh, tennis, cheerleading, volleyball, softball. I tried on for all, out for all sorts of sports and got cut, got cut, got cut. And uh, I remember coming home crying and my mom saying, 
well, this is building character. And I finally would say, I'm enough of a character. I just want to be on a team. And so when I, and I, and I did eventually make the track team and I cheered, but in grad school, I started kickboxing, competitively kickboxing. And one of the things I really loved about that was that I could do it myself. So even when I was on soccer teams as a child, sometimes if I showed up at every practice, did all the right things, sometimes I rode the bench the whole time just because there was a better 12-year-old. Like who who keeps a 12-year-old out of the game, right? Everybody should play at that age. But I like the control I had in kickboxing just because I was like, well, I'm going to win or lose based on me. I always get to play. That kind of just pushed me forward. I wanted more and I, I'm happy to work in teams, but for the most part, I have to... I have to do all the hard work. I have to overcome all the hurdles to get the things that I want. So um, I think a life of, you know, rejection and, and ambition and you put those things together and the girl in your head, she starts she starts being your best friend. Yeah. And I think that that's the key to success, right? It's making sure that that person in your head is always your best friend and never becomes your enemy. Because it's the same as the light and the dark thing that we just said. It's like that person in your head can be your best friend, but they can also be the person who's holding you back from just about everything. Like ah. We've had many conversations on this podcast for sure about so many people getting in their own way, self-sabotage and all this type of stuff. And I think that you hit the nail on the head there in the sense of saying, okay, someone has to be my ride or die supporter. Yeah. And that has to be me first and foremost. And I think that that's a beautiful message for people to remind themselves of. And I think that when you put the responsibility back into people's hands as well, it gives them that unbelievable level of control that we've just come back to once again. And I want to fast forward to today, Fitz. What does a day in the life of Fitz look like? And what is your mission on a day-to-day basis to do with the people that you get in touch with? Well, on the day in my life, if I'm at home, it starts and ends with my dogs out on a trail somewhere. And it's usually filled with some media interviews or writing. I do a lot of work from here. I I create online content. But when I'm on the road, which I leave tomorrow for Texas and California, and then I bounce all around the country, you know, early mornings exercise and then speaking and race announcing. And usually I'm so blessed to come in contact with so many people who just really care. They care about great communities and causes, but they're trying to do better for themselves And there's nothing I respect more because you and I know there's all these people doing jack. They're doing absolutely nothing to take care of themselves. And it boggles my mind. I think, oh, how could you be so reckless with your own body? Very frustrating, disappointing. I don't I don't laser focus my attention on those things because I know I can't I can't do anything about it. Right. I never give unsolicited advice. So those who step out and say, hey, I want to learn more and I want to do better. It's such a privilege to guide them and support them. And, you know, when it comes to race announcing, uh, that's a day off for me because I don't have to convince anybody that exercise is a good idea. A race organization says, here's 27,000 people who thought they liked to exercise today. And my job is to say, wow, you're here. Welcome. This is what you need to know. Um, And then I get them entertained and uh, whip them into a frenzy. I yell, go. They all leave going, woo, this is fun. And then they come through the finish line celebrating. And it's my job to make sure every last runner feels like they won. They won big today and uh, pour love on them. So it's, I just, I'm so fortunate and all of my days are happy days. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I couldn't imagine that the reality of like standing on that finish line and seeing, you know, there's so many people in this world, as you've mentioned, that are against doing anything for themselves. Yet you then get the opportunity to find those 27,000 plus who've decided that 
today is the peak of my training in some senses as well, right? Like it might be someone's first marathon or it might be someone's first 10K or half marathon, whatever it might be. And I had a client literally just two days ago complete a half marathon. It was a sixth, but it was nonetheless super, super satisfying. She was unbelievably proud of herself. And we went for a lot in the lead up to that. She had to actually cancel one before because of an injury. So yeah, it's amazing that people have those accomplishments. It's amazing that there are so many people who do actually want to look after their health. And one question I do have for you off the back of that is, do you think it's possible for all of us to really start taking care of our health and wellness? I think if we look at the stats, it actually seems like it's not moving in the best direction. But I know a lot of stuff in the fitness industry are incredibly, incredibly optimistic. But actually, when you look at the stats, maybe it's not suggesting or at least backing up the optimism that we have. So yes, I think fitness is the most simple, stupid science in the world. Absolutely, anybody can get up and do this. You know, absolutely everybody can move their body in some regard and fitness isn't complicated. There's strength, cardio, flexibility, balance. Everyone can do those things unless you're in a, unless you're paralyzed, unless your body doesn't work, you can do all those things even at the babiest level and make baby steps. Healthy food, for the most part, especially in first world countries, is available. It's just about choosing those things. And they're not the most expensive. You can buy I, you can buy produce items that in season, or you can buy them in the frozen food section. There's a lot of healthy food that's accessible and affordable to the masses. So, yes, I believe everybody can achieve these things. So, number one, people have to understand why. You know, people have to be compelled, buy off on the fact that, yeah, this is necessary. It's not just a good idea, but this is necessary for the outcome I would like. And then number two, there's, we just have so much work to do combating the liars in our industry because there's so many people that are still selling diet pills and selling diets and weight loss supplements when all of those things are phony baloney. And so how do the good people like you and I convince the masses that, they don't need to spend their hard-earned money on the hokey snake oil. What they need to do is just start being uh, discriminatory in what they put in their mouth. They don't have to be perfect. They don't have to count macros or any of those things. They have to eat the right amount of the right food for the size they want to be, move their body, get some sleep. And then I always say remove the cranky people because if you have horrible people in your life, they're going to they're, they're throw a wrench in, right? But uh, yes, I do believe it's very attainable um, for the masses. And, I, and I'm hoping one day that you and I get put out of business because everybody knows what they're doing and they don't need us anymore. Imagine that. That would be a dream come true. Huh? What a formula to success as well. Like you said, it is just a case of choosing the right foods for your body, moving a little bit, removing the negative people. And you have got a very simple formula to success. Maybe it's not going to lead you to the dream body, but it's going to get you a very, very, maybe yeah, maybe well, but it's going to lead you very much closer to that than you've ever been before. So I think that that's the best place to start. So Fitz has been an amazing conversation. I have a couple of final questions for you. The first is a big one, which is what impact do you want to have on the world with the work that you now do? Help as many people as possible live better and longer. Love it. I love it. And where's the best place for people to find you if they want to keep up with the work you're doing or if they want to grab some of your books? I would love that. So fitness.com, that's F-I-T-Z or Z-N-E-S-S.com is my home base for everything. If you would like autograph books, everything that leaves fitness.com gets signed personally by me. And, and these books make a great gift. So if you love someone with cancer, you know, get them the Healthy Cancer Comeback Journal, Your Healthy Cancer Comeback, or My Noisy Cancer Comeback. Um, those books are also available at mass, at major retailers worldwide. So wherever you live, you can 
you can grab these books. And then I am at Fitness on social media, on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. And then I love LinkedIn connections too. So what I ask though, is if you are going to connect, if you follow, I, I promise quality content, but really what I'd rather hear you say is, I heard you on Elliot's Simply Fit podcast and I wanted to say hello because I would much rather, much, much, much rather have friends than just followers. So so follow and then say hello and uh, let's see what wonderful things we can do together. Fitz, this has been an incredible and an inspirational conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Elliot. And that was the Simply Fit podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.